We're going to start there in verse number 16. It says, And it came to pass, as he went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. This did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. They laid many stripes upon them. They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. Lord, we thank you for your word and, Lord, for our church. Lord, I pray that you'd work in this time. Please, I pray for your mercy and your grace and your help. Please control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, may it feed us. Lord, may it meet needs that are here. Lord, you know what's going on in every single heart and mind and and what's present. There's just no way I could possibly uh, be a help, but I know you could. So I pray that you would use your word this morning to instruct us, to feed us, to help us, Lord. Lord, I especially pray if there's anyone here who's never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, I love you and I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have, we have, we're well into the second missionary journey. Paul has reported back to all the churches um, from the first missionary journey, we saw how God worked in the division between Barnabas, where Barnabas took John Mark, Paul takes Silas, and they head out. How God used that in his sovereignty. How Paul ends up uh, getting Timothy. Timothy is traveling with him. And how, we, how the Lord ended up closing all the doors as Paul headed into Asia Minor, thinking these great cities, this is where the Lord's going to have us. There's Ephesus and uh, Colossae, Laodicea, Thyatira, I mean, there's all these cities in Asia Minor, and Paul's thinking, this is it, but the Lord wouldn't allow it, and Paul just kept on traveling, and he tried to go up north to Bithynia, and the Lord just wouldn't allow that. Before you know it, he ran out of territory. He's, he's right on the Aegean Sea. He's at the coast. He's sitting there, and of course, that's when the vision appears unto him, and that call to go into Macedonia, which would be Europe, modern-day Greece. So he's leaving what is modern-day Turkey, headed into modern-day Greece. We also see God's sovereignty in Troas because he picked up somebody else, and that would be Luke, who is actually writing the book of Acts. That's where he meets Luke. Luke comes into play now. And they head over uh, into Macedonia. The very first city he comes to, of course, is Philippi. He comes into Philippi. He's there for several days. And the Sabbath comes, he heads to the river because there was no set synagogue in Philippi. 
Apparently, there just simply wasn't a population of Jewish men to form a synagogue. You had to have at least ten. He heads to the river. And, of course, there were some women there that were praying, Jewish women there praying, and, and some that were just about proselytes, Jewish proselytes, and being Lydia praying. She was a Gentile. And Paul there meets Lydia. And he personally gives her the gospel. The Lord opens her heart. And she gets saved. And really, Acts 16 deals with primarily the conversion uh, of two or three. We're not certain of the one we're going to do. Well, today was actually converted to Christ. The Bible does not tell us. But nonetheless, we have three people being dealt with in regards to the gospel. That is going to be Lydia, um, this damsel we're going to be looking at, and then, of course, the jailer. And when I was writing it down, when I, I, of course, I broke the chapter up in, in dealing with each of them. I had wrote down that we, you see God dealing with those who are dignified, those who are demon-possessed, and those who are despondent. Listen, the truth is the Lord wants to save everybody. It, he does. That's his desire. You certainly see that in this chapter. The gospel is what, what is key to it. Last week when we looked at Lydia, what grabbed my heart as I was studying that and I tried to convey last week is the fact that here was this woman, Lydia, that was genuinely seeking truth. She was from Thyatira, uh, um, and she, she, she was a successful businesswoman in charge of this branch over there in Philippi, which was uh, uh, one of the chief cities of the four parts of Macedonia, key area. But she wanted truth, and God sends to her Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, and she converts. Just incredible, the grace and love that God has. In our text today, we're going to deal with several things in our text. I won't finish all this today. I'm really just probably cover the bulk of what's in 16, 17, and 18, and then getting into the men uh, um, that were the, the owners of this demon-possessed woman. But we're going to get into this mantra that we hear often today, that if they name the name of Christ, it must be okay. That certainly isn't true, and we're going to see that today. I mean, even with all that's went on here in the nation just recently, if anybody dared question what was even going on with the revival in Kentucky, I mean, the, the persecution coming out of that was incredible. But we will see one of Satan's common tactics is that he always uses a measure of truth to suck you in. We're going to see this woman who is delivered from demonic possession. The truth is, still to this day, the spiritual battle that takes place is very real. It's, it's strong, it can be oppressive, and of course demon possession is really the ultimate. Being able to control that person at that level. Speaking through them. We, I will say this, in the day that we live in, and, and hear me, I think this is important. So as a, almost as a precaution getting into this message, let me say this. We do have to be careful that we do not blame our own sin on something other than self. That's very prominent today. You see, Pastor, I'm angry because I have an angry spirit that is oppressing me. No, you're angry because you have a wicked, sinful flesh. You see, Pastor, I, I struggle with lust because I have, a, I have a spirit of lust that's oppressing me. No, you struggle with lust because of your wicked, sinful flesh. We are in a culture that is obsessed with being a victim, even in our own sins. It's not really my fault. I'm a victim. Pastor, if this wasn't present, if I could have deliverance from this, I would be okay. 
It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Man never likes to take personal accountability for their own sin. It's always something else that causes it. Again, instead of acknowledging your own sinfulness, we tend to blame something else for our actions. But the truth is, you're not a victim, you're a sinner. And that is the first step to dealing with genuine repentance. Is to see, man, I need the Lord. I need His power, like we just sang in that song, to change us, or the special, I think, that was sung, actually. Now, demon possession does take place, and we're going to see that today. This is a different level. It's not that it's a demon of anger or a demon of lust like we like to give the names to him. I promise you, when a demon oppresses or possesses, he will do whatever he can to destroy that person. It doesn't matter whatever it is. Whatever weakness, whatever weak area is not there, whatever's not been guarded, whatever's not fenced. So we're going to see how Paul handles this. And then... In relation to that, we're also, if we have time, we're going to get into, we're going to see how many greed controls. Even when they see God doing an incredible work, doesn't matter. Greed controls. Greed for money and greed for power. And we're going to see people willing to destroy to satisfy their greed. So we're going to look at probably, probably just the two areas today, deliverance and the deluded and then possibly detain, but I, I really doubt that. So let's get into the first point here this morning, delivered. Verses 16 through 18. It says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this, and this did she many days, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So Paul now, he's been in Philippi for some time and he's working on ministry and, and, and going out to deal with people and, and, and of course prayer and whatnot. But as we saw, Lydia's just gotten saved and probably even we're not even certain of here. There's might even some others who have already come to know Christ besides Lydia and her household. But when, whenever you, know, you have somebody who's genuinely working for God, it's not long before the devil begins to work himself. He will begin to attack and he'll begin to hinder. And that's what we have taking place in our text. In this case, which is a common tactic of Satan, what he's going to try and do is infiltrate. He has a game plan in place here of what he's going to do. He likes to try and destroy, and he always likes to start and destroy from the inside. Remember, if we go back to Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, the devil started first when the church was exploding and taking off. We get to Acts chapter 5, he tries to attack the church at first from within. Infiltration. And now, here in our text, he's going to try and use this damsel. So as we read, this damsel starts following Paul. Paul is again trying to minister to give the Gospels out, trying to pray. She's following Paul and the men and crying out. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. Now I'm going to come back to that statement in a minute, because that's a true statement. But first, 
Let's learn about this damsel and see what we're actually dealing with. We know this woman is possessed by a demon from the text. We know that she is a slave. She's owned by these men. The wording that is used here is very specific for spirit of divination. It tells us a lot. It teaches us. It lets us know almost what demons we're controlling. The word for divination used here is the word python. The same word for the python, the snake. Just like the snake python. There was a certain type of female oracles from a certain part of Greece. They were all possessed by demons and people came to them to learn of their future. We need to tie into that history of what was taking place as we see what Paul is dealing with. Literally, the interpretation of that text is this, that she had a python spirit. Again, a Greek expression from mythology. In Greek mythology, python was a snake dragon creature that guarded the oracles at Delphi. And the actual name of the place in mythology was Pytho, thus the name Python. And so this great snake dragon that they called Python guarded the oracles. That's in Greek mythology. Now in that place, though, in actuality, even through this day of Paul, there were actually these oracles that were possessed, that people would come to. Now an oracle, if you're not familiar with that, that's an occult term. It's either a place where mediums consult demons or it means the revelation the demons give themselves. So it can refer to a place or demonic revelation. That's how you can see the word used in two different contexts. So in mythology, what happened with this snake python, Apollo, the third son of Jupiter, came down and killed python and took his power. So now the oracles receive the revelations from this uh, uh, Greek god, uh, Apollo. <clears throat> this took place at a mountain at the base at Delphi, where there were many women who were present, these oracles that were demon-possessed, and people would come to them uh, to learn of their future. So someone that was from this group, that's when the word was used, they had the python spirit. They were considered part of these oracles. This is who Paul is dealing with. She would have been advertised that way in the region. They would set up different temples and places throughout the country to bring these oracles in. This woman happens now to be a slave to these men. How they got ownership, obviously we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. This is demonic power. This was demonic power. And, was in, and from reading in it, uh, um, all were considered demon-possessed. So essentially, this girl was a medium in contact with demons that could supposedly predict the future. Again, there were many of these priestesses in different places throughout Greece. And let's face it, people are always obsessed with knowing the future. So as a result of her demon possession, she was making her masters much gain. They were rich because of her ability. And their mind, they, they struck a gold mine. They managed to turn this into a very profitable business in Philippi. The only work they really had was simply taking care of her and making sure she had clients, which would be very easy. Even today, the ridiculousness of astrology just last year was a $13 billion industry. 
People spent $13 billion on that. Look over in Isaiah chapter 8 with me. Isaiah chapter 8. Demon possession, different than what I dealt with a little bit in the introduction. Demon possession is that demon being able to maintain active control of that person. So much of the actions are, in fact, from the demon. Look at verse number 19. It says, When they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Here's the command of the Bible that all people should avoid all this nonsense that have these demonic spirits. That the key is we seek God, not this outrageous, not this ridiculous. We seek God, not demons. It's sad to say to see all those who will turn from, you know, isn't it amazing how good the devil has done a job at blinding people to how great this book is? A book written over a, 1,600-year time period. You know, approximately 40 different authors from kings to fishermen. 66 different books all coming together with the same message. Incredible. A third of it, over a third of it, being prophetic. And you know, at, 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 around Christmas time, I always do that one message on the prophecies that Christ fulfilled. And I give the statistical probability of that taking place. Astounding. No other book like it in the world. And yet people seek these demonic the, the astrology. Read it in the newspaper. Oh, this is what's going to happen today. People are blinded. So, Anyhow, that's who Paul is dealing with. Let me move on with this. And I want to get into the second thing. We see the damsel here, but now I want to get into demon theology. In our text, we have these demons falling out. They're, they're following Paul. They're staying right with him while he's trying to work. This is getting on Paul's nerves. He's annoyed. Demons keep call, the, the, the demon uh, keeps calling out. This is, these are the servants of the Most High God. They're making known unto us the way of salvation. And is that not a true statement? It is. It's what they're doing. You say, oh yes, but, but, so that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, really, this, this demon is helping Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke here in Philippi. Oh no, he isn't. This isn't a good thing at all. It's actually really, really bad coming from a demon. God wants those who worship Him to worship Him in spirit and in truth, not with a false, wicked motive. Not from a vile source of wickedness. Not from a place of hypocrisy. The Lord never wanted or ever accepted the testimony of demons. Paul in no way wanted this girl constantly following, calling out. So why was this demon-possessed damsel doing this? Satan is subtle. He is smart. 
And he is certainly using a measure of subtlety here. He's speaking truth to demon. The devil does that all the time, by the way. The devil always gives enough truth so that you will believe a lie. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Bible's very clear. You better be careful of Satan and his demons. Because they like to appear as what? An angel of light. It's one of his most successful strategies. There are many demons who have no trouble using calling out like here with what's going on here. This is why the Bible commands us in 1 John, commands us to try the spirits, to see whether they be of God. So in other words, even, even that text has in it given by the statement itself that there are false, there are demonic spirits that will present themselves as a measure of truth so that you better try the spirits. It's what we need to do. We know this. God will never go against his word. And again, the devil likes to give enough truth to suck you in. He did that with Eve. Just because in an event or a person claims to be of God, you never take it just at face value. What is the fruit? Does it go against Scripture? What is the end? The 19th century, we saw the rise of a lot of isms. The devil was hard at work in the 19th century. I mean, he always is. But we've seen the devil get some footholds in in the 19th century that were still, this world is reaping the results of today. Mormonism. has enough truth in it to suck you in. Jehovah Witness and H.T. Russell. It has enough element of truth to it to suck you in. Satan doesn't come appearing to Satan. He comes as that angel of light. Talking about the Most High God. But as in here in our text, truth is not the motive here. The little bit of truth here is the bait. Motive is always to destroy, not to glorify God in any way. Not to see actual salvation take place. The motive is to destroy. The opposite. To do whatever he can to hinder God getting glory. This is true in our text. If this demon can get the people to associate him with Paul's work, think of the success he will have. Think of the destruction he can do. Especially when Paul leaves. Oh yes, I'm with Paul traveling, following, 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 following. Yes, for the servants of the Most High God. He wants associated with it. So he can infiltrate and destroy. I think the demon also as well as thinking this protects him. Perhaps during this time from being discredited with, with knowing that actually the hand of God is on Paul. 
And so he's, it's a measure even of self-protection here taking place. Demons will say anything they need to say. Say, Pastor, we don't understand. This man, he really speaks Christ. You just don't understand. You know, he has even more revelation than the Bible. You'd better try the spirits. Satan doesn't mind non-believers publicizing Christ. Simple reason. Think about this. Non-believers trying to publicize Christ. There's there's multiple ends that can come of that that are horrendous. Many will see, just like we see with a lot of the nonsense that goes on TV, people look at that and see, that's Christianity? What a bunch of nonsense. You've got to be kidding me. People barking like dogs, falling over themselves, shaking down on the floor. People see it and want nothing to do with it. Or he can go the cult route. Sucking people in to get him into a false system of theology that ends up in their damnation. God does not want, nor does he need, Satan or his demons promoting him. This demon wanted people thinking Paul was in alliance with him, or in this case, the damsel. We're one and the same. And Paul knew it. So let's go into her deliverance, because that's interesting here. Because Paul waited. We see that Paul was grieved. I mean, she's following and Paul is hesitating. He didn't deliver her right away. He's, he's holding up. He's grieved for her. He has compassion. And he's certainly grieved because he didn't like what was taking place. He knows, I cannot be associated with this demon. He knows what's taking place right now. I think he was also, of course, grieved in compassion for the damsel herself being possessed like this. This woman is doing this for days, and Paul knows this needs to stop. But again, Paul delays. When you think about it, I'm not certain why the Bible does not give us the reason why he waited. This is what I would tend to believe, what makes sense to me, is why Paul would wait. One, I think Paul, Paul waited, one, to see if there's any way, Lord, provide means that he could purchase her from her masters and then set her free. Paul is very much aware what happens when he delivers her. He knows what's going to take place. He knows not only is he going to, are they going to suffer major repercussions for this, but so will the damsel. And if he could free her from that first and deliver her, that would be different. I think that's a possibility. I have no doubt Paul knows, he's delaying, he knows if this takes place, it's going to get bad for us really quick. But Paul also knows it's always right to do right. Following the Lord takes a measure of boldness at times. And as we're going to see, God has things in plan. God in His sovereign hand knows what's going to take place, and He's going to use all of it. Because the guy who happens to be in charge of the prison 
is also seeking truth. Paul knows it's going to be major trouble when this happens. He also understood her being available for purchase was very doubtful. She was no doubt, again, providing much gain. She was very profitable. So Paul realized this after a number of days and says, that's it, this has to stop, and he delivers her. He had that apostolic authority, commands it, and that demon is gone. Now think of that. That woman all of a sudden is in her right mind. Delivered. And I like to think at that time she sat down and listened to Paul and put her faith in Christ. It just doesn't tell us. We don't know what happened with her at that point. Being delivered from a demon doesn't mean you're saved. It certainly now puts you in a place where you can hear the gospel and make that decision. And she very well could have. We don't know. I just tend to think, had she made that decision, I think it would have been there. But I don't know. So she is delivered, and regardless, there's a change is immediate. I mean, obviously her master, I mean, it's, it's clear. She's different now. She's delivered from that. And then at that point where we see the deluded, her masters, her owners. Look at these verses here. It says this. Verse 19. When her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Let's stop right there. I don't think we'll get farther than those verses this morning. So here we see through verse 21 the deluded, these men deluded by greed. Think of what they just saw. Here is this man that they've heard preaching. People are talking about him. I mean, remember, when the Apostle Paul spoke, people would come. I mean, here is this man, one, preaching with such power that he had, and preaching truth. That the people, when they would hear it, you would recognize, man, this sounds right. It doesn't sound like all the nonsense I grew up believing. People are following, they're there. And, and here are these men, her owners, no doubt knowing of Paul. And Paul comes by and just in an instant, she's delivered. That, that spirit she had is gone. They saw a miracle take place. They saw her change from one second to the next when that man said in the name of Jesus Christ, get out. So they understood there's something to this man, Jesus Christ. Because I, I prom- they've never witnessed anything like that before in their life. They saw genuine power. They saw something that was real. Something that should have convicted. Something that should have gave them pause. But even though they saw God working in a great way, their greed caused them to be spiritually dull. They didn't think about the miracle. And that perhaps these men are speaking truth. They simply cared their gain was gone. They cared nothing for this girl at all. Nothing. 
They simply used her for profit. They didn't care if she was free from what possessed her. They didn't care if she was free to go about a normal life. The love of money blinded them. They're not concerned about truth. They have no love of truth as we looked at in 2 Thessalonians. But love of profit. This isn't the only time we see this in Scripture. Think of Mark chapter 5. With the maniac in Gadara. With a legion. 6,000. Many. Possessed by multitude of demons. And there he is. I mean, they had to try and chain this guy up. Chains couldn't hold him. He had cut himself with stones. I mean, just everybody had to avoid him. And then all of a sudden, Christ speaks to this man. He's clothed and in his right mind like that. Incredible power. You think the people would be rejoicing? They had a bit of a problem. Because when Christ threw out all those demons, he sent them into the swine, which ran into the water and drowned. That was their source of profit. They simply wanted them gone. Greed blinds. Greed makes you dull spiritually. It's not the only place we see that in Scripture also. Besides Matthew 5 and here in our text, we're going to see it again when we get to Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. When revival takes place, an amazing revival takes place in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. I can't wait to get there. But there was a problem when a major revival hits in a major town like Ephesus. The idol makers who made all their money off people buying idols and sticking them on their fridge and on their cars and everywhere like that. Nobody's buying them anymore. They lost their source of profit. Profit blinds. Well, you can think in the ministry of those who are blinded by profit. So we see the same thing throughout Scripture. Money can get into the way of spiritual perception. The Bible says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. The snare captures you. That affects what you see. Often we forget that life is not about money and the things we possess, but the Almighty God and the relationships we have. How often do we have things hinder us from seeing God working as we should in our own life? What is it that you see as gain for you? What is it in your heart that, to use the terminology from Acts chapter 16, that in your heart and in your mind you view as gain? What truly is gain, there's only one thing, that is the Lord. Nothing else compares to it. Nothing. Listen, if you've been on the fence about that, all that matters is God. That's it. He truly is what life is all about. Paul is one of the greatest examples of this. He realized this in his life. His position prior to his conversion was gained to him. His heritage was gained to him. His nation was gained to him. His righteousness was gained to him. Yet in truth, those things were all blinding him. I mean, he heard Stephen preach, one of the greatest preachers in the New Testament. Heard him speak with such eloquence, presenting the case that Jesus was the Christ. 
It wasn't until God blinded him physically that he began to see. And he realized he is the Christ. And Paul, all those things that were gained to him, he counted now as loss. Only thing that mattered now was knowing Christ, that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Boy, when that truth hit. Look at your own life. What is it that you think you have preventing you from seeing God working in your life? What is it that is gained to you? Is it money? Is it pride? Is it pleasure? Whatever it is. What deserves to be preeminent in our life is God. The most important gain you get is God. It is truth. To see Christ as that pearl of great price. To see Him as the goal, as Philippians chapter 3 tells us. What is it that is gained to you in your life? Then as I finish up here, we have the charge that these men gave. They were furious. They greeted, blinded them. They didn't care that the woman was now in her right mind. They didn't care of the miracle they just saw. They wanted nothing to do with truth. They lost their gain. And now all of a sudden they're going to be all worried about the law. Now they're concerned about it. Now they're going to become self-righteous and so concerned about the law. We see this so many times in, in our world. They get them. They go to the magistrates. These men are troubling our city. Teaching customs. They're not allowed to teach. And in truth, they had a basis. They were actually acting on a very real law that was in place by Rome. No new religion. No new religion. They had two things going for them, actually. If, we'll see this when we get to Acts chapter 20. But Rome had a law in place where in the city of Rome, they actually threw out all Jews. Threw them out. Out of the city. So there was, there was a strong uh, um, anti-Semitic movement of that day in Rome. Which explains why, because they come up both those charges. These men are Jews. And they're teaching customs. That word means that they're speaking of a new religion. This isn't lawful. So they had both things going for them. They knew they had a strong case for this to take place. Again, Rome wanted the emperor to be worshipped. Because those two men were Jews, it also explains why only Paul and Silas were arrested and not Luke and Timothy. Interesting enough, at this point, of course, God's in control. His sovereignty is in control. That Paul and Silas have not yet used the Roman citizenship. They don't say, I mean, it might have been too quick. Everything is happening so fast. I don't know. But they're getting ready to endure a lot. I mean, a lot, very quickly. The beating they're getting ready to endure is brutal with how it was done. Brutal. They know it's coming. Again, Paul knew. As soon as I do this, he knew. You've got to understand how popular those oracles were. He knew this happens. It was going to happen. I mean, 
Paul, Paul was a man of, of boldness and faith. I also think in, 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 in Paul's mind, he recognized from, from the time of his conversion that he was going to suffer for Christ, that it was going to take place. It's amazing to see a man that's willing to do right regardless. I think he gave it a few days just to see if there's another option that presented itself. But they're arrested, and as we're going to see, we get into this next week. They're going to be beaten and cast into prison. And we'll get into them being detained next week. So this evening, excuse me, this morning. So this, I preached a long time, didn't I? We went all the way to the night right now, just what just happened. I'm going to bed after this then, that's all that means. <laughs> but we do learn a lot here. We learn one, in the day we live in, don't think Satan is any less active today than he was then. He loves to appear as an angel of light. Think about this at Judgment Day. Think about this, I want you to listen to me now. The Lord Jesus Christ said, them, said this himself about the judgment, the great right throne of judgment. That is the judgment when all the lost stand before God and are then cast into hell. That's that judgment. When talking about it, Jesus said this. He said, in that day, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many wonderful works? In thy name, he's going to stand and depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So Christ was teaching there that at Judgment Day, there's a measure of people that thought they were just fine that did things in the name of Christ and were deceived. Now, their own mouth condemned them. They thought they were saved based on what they did. I went to church. I was a deacon. I was a Sunday. Look what I did in your name. How can I be lost? Because your works, your good works, your righteousness does nothing to save you. Nothing. If you are trusting in your works to get to heaven, you have been deceived. If you are trusting in the fact that you got baptized in water, do you think that water can take away your sin? The measure of deception is strong. People always like to think, I have to do something. I got news. When it comes to salvation before that judgment day, there's nothing you can do. You see, God understood that when you stand there, you are guilty. There's no changing that. You have broken God's law. I don't care who you are. Don't fall for the deception. Of, I don't know the multitudes I've talked with when I hear this. Pastor, it's all right. Me and God got our own thing worked out. No, you don't. I'm telling you right now, you're believing a lie in your own mind. Do you know the easiest person for you to deceive? It isn't your spouse. It isn't your kids. It isn't your coworkers. It's your own heart. That's the easiest one to deceive. You don't have your own thing worked out before God. You will stand before him in judgment and you are guilty. And I got news for you. God's two primary attributes in the Word of God are His holiness and His justice. That ain't changing. Nope. He is holy and He is just. If He judges you in that condition, you will be condemned. You see, something has to take place. Your only escape from that judgment is this. You have to look perfect, but you're not. Isn't that amazing what God did? Think about that. He is holy. He is just. Yet He loves us. 
So he had to have some way to be able to save us from that. This is where grace comes in. God became a man 2,000 years ago. Think about that. The creator, the one who spoke it, and this world came into existence. He becomes man. Why? Incredible. Think about this. He's the only man who ever lived. God the Son. The Almighty God. Lived on this earth as a man. Just think of that aspect of it as mind-boggling. But as a man, he lived the perfect life. The Bible refers to him as the second Adam. Why? Get this. This is incredible. Neat as anything. For the first time and only time in all of human history, you now have a man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who could actually go to that judgment day and the Father could say, you're innocent. You have no guilt. You are perfect. Now, this gets even better. Get this. He lived that perfect life for you. When he went to the cross to die for you. Listen, we hear that statement all the time. Christ died for you, died for your sins on the cross. Multitudes have heard that, yet the vast majority have no clue what that means. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, speaking of the cross. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When he died on that cross, we call it a substitutionary death. What do you mean by that? He became your substitute. He went in your place in judgment. God the Father, the creator of the entire universe. God the Son, same God. One God exists in three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We don't have three gods. We have one God. That's it. God the Son on the cross. He takes on our sin. What do you mean? It is now as if in that moment in time, as if he was the transgressor, as if he committed your sins. I want you to think about that for a second. I don't think we should dwell on our own sins, but I want you to very briefly right now. Think of how wicked you are. That sin went upon Christ. And he took your judgment for you. That satisfied justice. But not only did he take your sin, the verse also tells us he gives us his righteousness. He takes your sin and he gives you his perfect life. Think about it. If that takes place, where here at Judgment Day, here's all of your sin. Here's the book that is open in Revelation chapter 20. It's going to have your name on it. Boom. Here it is. Every time you've broken God's laws is there. There's no mitigating it. It's done. You're not going to say a word. You're not going to say, but this is why it happened. You know, if I didn't have the angry spirit on me, it wouldn't have taken place. No, you will be guilty for your sin. And it's all there. There's nothing you can say. But over here is Christ in his perfect life. I'm sure I've not written on there. It's Christ in his perfect life. There's no sin here. So when I say that Christ died for you, what you can do is you can take your name and put it over here. In Christ's name, and put it over here. See, if that takes place, and your name's over here, it looks as if you have never sinned. Perfection, which is God's requirement. And over here is Christ with all of your sin. 
And know what happened to him? He was judged in your place. But hell didn't hold him. He is God. After three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again from the dead. And if you go to hell, you're not coming out. You're not God. That'll never happen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. If you'll come to him in repentance and faith, he will save you. No other way. You say, I don't understand that. Remember when he died on the cross, I'll finish with this. I'm done. But just don't lose me yet. When Christ died on the cross, two thieves died on each side of him. The one thief spoke up and said this, If thou be the Christ, get us down from here. Know what he wanted saved from? His circumstance. Do you know how many people go to God and just want to save out of a circumstance? Christ never acknowledges him. As far as the Bible tells us, I'll say it like that. Never acknowledges him, never looks at him, nothing. The other thief speaks up, though. Listen to what he said. He said, if, he said, excuse me, he said, he said, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. This man had done nothing wrong. And then he looks at the Lord. He says, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. At that moment, the Lord looks at him and says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It was done. Whatever he did, just work. Remember, it was that one preacher that was joking, I brought it up a few weeks ago, but it was, his illustration was excellent. It's like, could you imagine that when he got to heaven? Like seconds, hours later, he's in heaven. And, you know, Peter there, Michael, the archangels there. How'd you get here? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I really don't know. But, but how did you get here? What, what, what happened? Well, I really don't know. And so they're going on and on with the questions of the preacher. And the illustration was just going on and on. It was excellent. He goes, I just don't know. And finally he said, well, you've got to tell us. He goes, all I know is, is the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's faith in Christ alone. What he did was this. He never asked to come down from the cross. What was he afraid of? Judgment to come. He knew he was a guilty sinner. That's the first step. Recognizing your own sinful condition before God. And then he put his faith in the only one who could help him. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment he did that, he was saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. With heads bowed and eyes closed.